Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Jörg Winger, co-creator of the Deutschland 83 Cold War trilogy, about the series' conclusion and setting up his own production label within Fremantle during the coronavirus crisis. And Russell Dodgson, creative director of television at Framestore, talks about the BAFTA award-winning visual effects wizardry behind BBC HBO co-pro His Dark Materials and why the use of VFX in television is only set to grow as a result of the pandemic. Deutschland 83 became the first German-language drama to air on a US network five years ago when the RTL series was picked up by AMC network Sundance TV. The Cold War spy thriller went on to break further boundaries for German drama, acquired by Channel 4 in the UK and many others, with Amazon backing a second season set in 1986 and a third and final instalment, Deutschland 89, set to conclude this fall. Co-creator Jörg Winger from Fremantle's Ufa Fiction has now launched his own production company, Big Window Productions, and spoke with Michael Picard about the significance of the series, starting the label during the coronavirus crisis, its relationship with Fremantle, and the titles he's developing, including one exploring an outbreak of COVID-19 in a slaughterhouse. I basically was in post-production Deutschland in the editing via remote control. We looked at the same screen through a third screen, etc. That, that worked out well. And we were you know, amazed by how much people were touching their faces during the shoot. <laughs> we looked at the material. And now, of course, in development, everybody's asking, like, so is this contemporary drama taking place pre-COVID, during COVID, or you know, post-COVID? It's, it's exciting to launch a new uh, company. It's it's exciting that Dodgeon 89 comes out, the final season of the trilogy. And uh, yeah, so I think it's probably going to take us another year. I think that probably next summer we'll be through with this. But, you know, who, what do I know? <laughs> I mean, is it, is it a good time to launch a production company? I mean, what was, I guess you can't, you know, time these things perfectly. But I mean, has how, how has it been for you to get, you know, this new, um, uh, you know, label off, off the ground, considering, you know, the time we're in at the moment yeah no it's it's uh it's a i I would say for me this is a this is a good time because it fits into my you know the next stage of my life as a as a writer producer i think for me it's it's a good fit because i can do what i love most which is you know writing and producing uh and in my with my own with a small unit you know it's very focused with my own brand so that that's what i wanted to do next and uh i I uh, had a few offers from other players and um, those were also very tempting. And But in the end, um, I felt uh, very comfortable and, you know, I have very long-standing, trusting relationships with the people at Ufa and Fremantle. So it, it made sense. So no, I'm, hap- I'm happy where I am. I, I, like, I like this feeling of this startup feeling yeah. and with, with a big, you know, with a big player so that I don't have to, you know, the, the back office is taken care of. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask. I mean, what what does being or continuing to be part of Ufa and and you know Fremantle on a global scale? I mean, what what does that offer you as as yeah. a startup, and how can you use yeah. those companies to build those connections and get the shows that you want to make off the ground? Yes, well, in in terms of tradecraft or you know spycraft, of course, it's it's good to have all these ears and eyes on the ground in all the territories and people like Christian Vesper and Sarah Duell. You know, there's a lot of 
exchange of information or intel. So that's one thing that's very, very useful because, you know, our business is all about timing. You know, you could have a great show and you wouldn't be able to sell it last year and you wouldn't be able to sell it next year, but now is the time. And then, you know, so that I think enables better timing. So that's interesting. And then also, you know, one of the projects where we already have a development deal with uh, France Television uh, is uh, Ouija, which I do with uh, Thomas Bourguignon at uh, Quai in Paris. And uh, he's, uh, he's also part of the Fremantle family. So there's, there's some great people in the Fremantle family who I plan to co-produce with. I mean, foremost, Thomas. We've, it's been working so well that we have uh, a few others' developments that we talk about. I mean, now we're totally focused on, on Ouija, where we... Yeah, writing the scripts we already have to written two scripts and we hope you know we hope that we might be shooting this next year but then there's you know there's lots of interesting people and i think even though the streamers are very attractive to work with the other model that i find uh, still find attractive is the the, the binational uh, co-production you know french german in this instance or british german or probably there's always going to be a german angle but american german you know that's if you get two broadcasters who are aligned and uh, share the vision then that's that's also a really interesting model for us and um, I mean you mentioned kind of your brand going forward I mean what kind of shows do you want to to make with you know with Big Window or is there a certain genre or is it that co-production model that will be kind of defining the shows that you make you know it's shows that are in terms of content it's it's really shows that are inspiring to to us to my team and myself and that will usually have some kind of political element, I guess. We're not interested in pure entertainment. I started out as a journalist, so I have a a bias towards stories that are based on real stories or inspired by real stories. And I I think, you know, reality is always stranger than fiction and uh, or it can be is the better version of, you know, the the best fiction. And uh, so, you know, we always want to join some conversation that we care about. But that, of course, doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be entertaining. We want and need to entertain people to get them to stories that are maybe a little bit more than entertainment. And in terms of um, the industry at the moment, I mean, how do you see um, things playing out? Are things picking up in in Germany again? And and what do you think the knock-on effect is going to be for your company and and many others in in Germany, but, you know, around the world who are looking to piece together these international productions? Uh, I mean, I think in this specific example, we're, we're lucky because the success of the Deutschland series um, has has opened the doors for us internationally. So we can pitch not only in Germany but also in the UK and in France and in the US. Uh, so it's it's a much bigger playing field, uh, which um, is uh, of course great. And also the arrival of the streamers has you know brought so much competition on the broadcasting side. And so for us, our idea is to focus on the projects we really love and care about, and then we can of trust that there will be someone uh, out there uh, who will <laughs> who will love it as much as we do. So that's that's good. In Germany specifically, I would say currently the situation is, is good. We have already within UFA in a broader sense, we have already started shooting a few months ago. And in some cases, we have never stopped shooting. And it's a learning curve. We, uh, we learn a lot about how to design a set and the processes to minimize the risk 
risks of any kind of uh, outbreak. So I think it's a it's a very steep learning curve. And um, you know, knock on wood, we hope that if we don't get any major outbreak here, I think we will be get better and better at producing uh, more and more complex shows within the world of COVID. You know, before we find the silver bullet. I, I was obviously drawn to one of your development projects, the Jungle, which you're doing with, with TNT Siri in Germany. That um, mm-hmm. the short description is a, it's about an outbreak of COVID nineteen in a high tech slaughterhouse. So I guess you're openly embracing COVID storytelling and and you know going down that route. I guess a lot of other writers are saying they're going to maybe steer clear of it for at least a little while until yes. it calms down. But you're going yeah, think, head first. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I think if you when you when you ask this question, I think you have to either stay clear of it or you know throw yourself into the midst of it. And I think I mean this is not going to be it's not going to be a COVID show. It's going to be much more a show about the meat industry. And uh, of course, it's a, going to be a character-driven show. So it's going to be about people in a system. And, uh, you know, I um, I think uh, institutional insanity is, is one of my favorite <laughs> Um, things and you know when you look at the meat industry, I, I I think you have a you have a great example. And by that I don't mean to be black and white because I think it's something that is basically built on the greed, the consumer's greed for a cheap sausage. And uh, and uh, people like to look away from uh, what's happening behind the scene. But you know in this instance, the coronavirus is almost like a catalyst again, uh, which sheds light on something that. That people were not willing to look at. So, well, you know, there's a very, let's say, cheap and easy way to tell the story, but we will go for something, you know, surprising, I, I hope, and uh, have a different approach um, to the meat industry. So it's not going to be so good and evil and black and white as 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 one might, um, you know, suspect. And, and and apart from, you know, starting a new production company in, in the last few months amid amid the COVID pandemic, I mean, how, how has, you know, the global environment changed the way you are developing? developing shows is it are you doing that in a different way i guess remotely is is an obvious answer but are you looking at the way you might develop shows in the future and and are these processes you're using now going to be here forever or do you think we'll kind of go back to all sitting in a room and and just chatting for weeks on end (laughs) you know this is uh the question are 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 people uh, capable of learning anything (laughs) uh you know i i think the jury will be out i think what we have learned is that it has advantages, you know, not to be stuck in endless meetings. I always thought that the American writers, the American version of the writers' room was just, was not the optimal way of doing things where, you know, you basically spend 24-7 uh, in a container. That is not the way I, I, I like to do this. I, I think I will have after the, I mean, I hope I'm smart enough to uh, travel less and have less meetings after COVID than I had before COVID. But then again, there's this urge right and I can feel it myself you know you want to be you know in a room with people so it's not just about efficiency it's also about you know the I, I'm sure you've read also a lot about uh, now zoom fatigue and you know it's it's real you know that, that's one of the downsides so um, there's something lacking you know even though it's better I mean I'm so glad we have this you know this is much better than being on the phone but it's still not like being
being in the same room. And there's something in the human, I think, in the human condition that <laughs> drives people together. So I don't know, probably uh, the short answer to this is probably, I hope to, to find something like probably exactly in the middle of what it was like before COVID and how I'm working now. You mentioned, you know, Deutschland is, is coming up again and, and it's the last season. What can you tell us about what's in store for, for you know, for Deutschland 89? But I mean, also just tell us about the impact the show has had because it, it's been one of the leaders of the global interest in international drama, I think, from um, several years ago when in the UK, at least, Channel 4 picked up yeah. Deutschland 83 and it became an overnight sensation. So what has working on that show been like for you? And, you know, now it's coming to an end. No, it's been, it's been you know, an incredible journey for for Anna and myself and for the entire team and the international success was not planned it was really very exciting it has as I said before it has opened the gates for uh, German content in the world and uh, it has also opened the gates for us you know in into the world personally so it's been a life-changing uh, experience and I am incredibly thankful to everybody who was uh, able to uh, who made this happen and of course now we're on Amazon uh, and on many different uh, channels throughout the world but I always remember that you know it was RTL who greenlit the show you know and uh, even though they're not our primary partner anymore it would never have happened without them so I'm also very thankful to them I think that on the other hand you know it's 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 strange because it's you look back and you think wow this is this was five years of my life right it's, it's really like such a show with three seasons it's, it's, so for me the the learning is uh, for your next show you really need to love your next show because you might spend you know years of your life with with the show and with the people and we were very lucky we you know we we picked the right people um, and who worked really hard and passionately and uh, so it was yeah it was it was a it was a um, I don't want to sound religious a blessing is not probably the right word um, it was uh, <laughs> the stars were all in the right place I mean what what can you tell us about how the series concludes and yeah. uh, I guess we're yeah. leaning into the end of the, you know the fall of the wall and and you know what what can you tell us about the show I, I was fascinated by the question what is it like when everything around you just crumbles away uh, and that was pre-covid <laughs> So when when we did research and read about the real people at HVA and in the GDR and of course all the stories that I knew from you know living in Germany and in East Germany for a while where people really had to reinvent themselves. So they lost their job. They didn't only lose their job, they also lost the organization they worked for. They lost the country. They lost the entire ideology. You know, everything they were told was true was, you know, untrue the next day. So, um, I mean, the half-hour agents were pretty savvy and so they were not uh, totally innocent, of course, but they all had to find a new life. So I was really interested in the, fascinated by the idea of reinvention, which they will all do. They will all, all our our main characters will reinvent themselves and they had many options because the East German agents were very uh, sought after assets for you know the CIA or the KGB and uh, but they were also you know they knew the world so they were also maybe tempted to go into business or you know to start a new life somewhere else um, and I think it leads our characters to the kind of dilemmas and choices that I, I uh, that we love it's sometimes about life and death 
death, but sometimes it's also really absurd. And none of the star, I mean, the stories are all fictional, but um, all the things you see have actually happened in one way or other. Reinvention, you know, it's the big theme. And that, of course, is now, I think, well, if people watch it in the fall, maybe they will think, yeah, you know, it's something that I can relate to. Working on it with your wife, Anna, who's got her own company, Studio Airlift. I mean, do you imagine, you know, your your company and and hers sort of reteaming again in the future on on new projects? Who knows? I mean, I I think uh, at this point, when uh, Anna had the um, opportunity to to make Unorthodox, which, you know, uh, has become a fantastic show. And so I took over the hat writing for 89. Um, I think it was the right decision to do because, you know, we we love to work together, but that doesn't mean that we have to do everything together. And uh, so this made sense for us to, to, to split it up like this. And, you know, in the future, if we find a project that we're equally passionate about, I think we can collaborate or co-produce. I think that's definitely uh, an option. And and just, I mean, finally, if you can, you know, dig out your crystal ball, you sort of mentioned, hopefully next summer, we'll be back to some sort of normality. I mean, how do you just think, um, you yeah. know, that the industry is going to play out over the next six or 12 months in terms of, you know, I guess getting back to work and events being held again? And do you, do you think we'll come through the other side unscathed? I think we'll come through the other side. I think it will be a bumpy ride for the next, uh, I don't know, let's say, um, you know, nine to 12 months. I, I fear that, and I can see it, you know, I can see it with my teenage daughter. I mean, people are really just tired of of this. And uh, so I think you see people, you see a lot of people who are understandably tired and it's very hard to play by the rules. But unfortunately, it is really, really crucial to play by the rules if we want to keep this in check. So I'm I'm pessimistic in the short term and optimistic in the long term. So I don't know what's going to happen to movie theaters. You know, I think we will have the opportunity maybe to shoot. We, You know, Big Window has a few projects that are English language language and uh, take place in in Berlin or in Europe. So, you know, maybe we can shoot some things that are not, that you wouldn't be able to shoot in the US. So we'll somehow have to find a way. I'm also developing, you know, a few shows that are real chamber plays where you could quarantine a really small ensemble. (laughs) So I think we have to be really smart and flexible and try to find, you know, the ways through this. And then at the end, I think, I, I just really hope um, that we'll find a vaccine, you know, that will be distributed, uh, let's say, next summer or next spring. Jörg Winger from Big Window Productions. Framestore creative director of television Russell Dodgson was stuck in post-lockdown traffic when he learned he and the visual effects team behind BBC HBO fantasy drama His Dark Materials had won a BAFTA for their efforts on the series. Now, working from home on season two, the series VFX supervisor spoke to Michael Picard about the wizardry involved in bringing to life the animal demons and giant polar bears that populate the adaptation of Philip Pullman's novels and why he thinks the present pandemic will lead to a greater demand for visual effects in television than ever. I guess you could say there's like a handful of massive visual effects companies in the world that churn out um, a certain level of work and frame store sit very comfortably in that with a, with a definite... Uh, notoriety for performance you know of CGI characters like really really nuanced characterful performances so if you look back over the history they've done you know we killed Dobby for a start it's quite good you know we did the Niffler we do Fantastic Beasts we do Rocket Raccoon from Gods of the Galaxy uh, we did Gravity so you know we've got a really 
broad range of projects and a real depth of um, character work. Actually, we did Paddington as well, which is a, one of the bigger ones recently. And then I joined Framestore about 10 years ago, and I kind of came up through the commercials division, which is a little bit different, and sort of worked up through there. And I actually ran one of their departments globally for quite a long time, which is the compositing department, which is where you put everything together in the shots that we do. And then uh, eventually I ended up moving over and sort of being kind of, I guess, central to us restarting our working TV and I did um, some Black Mirror. Uh, we did USS Callister actually, which was really good fun. And then we also did a TV show for Nat Geo called Mars. And then shortly after that, we had a whole bunch of projects kind of going on. And then I ended up getting swooped up and thrown onto his dark materials uh, very willingly. And uh, that has represented now two and a half years of my life. We'll talk a bit more about his dark materials in a minute, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on VFX, I guess, in general and high-end TV drama and how the two have expanded, I guess, over the last five 10 years I mean what's your your view I guess on, on how VFX has become an integral part of, of TV drama yeah so I think um, it's interesting I guess when I started looking and uh, I historically have always been someone that enjoyed TV a lot you know like I really like investing my time on a larger scale than just an hour and a half to two hour slot and you know funnily enough I look at things like the Marvel films and they're one large ex- sort of expanded story that could theoretically be a series of very expensive TV episodes. You know, so I've always had a real love of television. And I think about four or five years ago, I was sort of looking at the landscape and suddenly seeing things like Game of Thrones changing that landscape. And that was even before Game of Thrones really went mental with their visual effects. And I was really excited about that because I also think that there's a change in the way people consume media now where they either want like a long haul experience or a short bite-sized sort of tidbit almost, you know? So I think that for a start, I think the audience is changing. And I think the audience with Netflix and streaming and all of the different kind of platforms, they have got way more access now to on-demand kind of investments of their time, I think, with their media, which I think is really good. Um, And I think that obviously high-end visual effects has been sitting in the land of film for a very long time. But the money often goes where the audience is. And as the audience has expanded in TV and the access to long-form TV and, you know, kind of non-linear viewing, if you will, like the ability just to turn it on whenever you want, you don't have to wait week to week. I think that's really driven a lot of audience and therefore a lot of money into that realm. And you can see with Game of Thrones and, you know, I guess not shortly after Game of Thrones finishing us and a range of shows in between have suddenly, you know, this this kind of high-end visual effects thing has expanded and blown up in the TV sort of strata i guess has that has that been sort of quite a a creative challenge considering you know the the difference in budgets between tv and and film generally or have you seen budgets and and um i guess the willingness to do vfx properly on tv has has changed the game somewhat for for vfx in the medium yeah it's definitely changed i think that you know the the exciting thing is when people are starting to use visual effects for narrative purposes rather than just for that big bit in the eighth episode or the old school sweeps week where it was like we've really got to keep everyone coming back after the ratings are all gathered in. So I think um, it's really nice to see that it's becoming a narrative storytelling point. And I think in TV, you often get to spread it out a bit more. So instead of having these massive flare-up moments like you do in a lot of features, you get to kind of seed the visual effects in and really embed them into a narrative, which is fundamentally why I really enjoy them. So, yeah, I think that that has changed. But, you know, the budgets are, you know, they're tricky. It depends on the show. There's never enough money to do a visual effects show because sadly, you know, with visual effects, the sky's the limit, which means that everybody kind of goes, well, what if we added this? And what if we added this? And what if we added this? And that's the challenge, but it's also kind of the curse. So I think, 
you know, as confidence grows and shows, you look at Game of Thrones from season one to season eight or whatever it was. I mean, that's a vastly different sort of budget. You know, season one was pretty standard for TV at that time, I think. And then as the audience grew, plus just how much that show blew up, it drove a lot more budget into that space, which I think gave a lot more other people confidence in it. But there were things you have to kind of counteract when you're doing um, long form. And that is uh, in film, you often find that the budgets are quite high as well because they build in a lot of versioning, a lot of iteration. And, you know, you might get onto version 800 of a shot and then suddenly realise that you ended up preferring version 60 and that's the one you deliver. And there's the room for those creative journeys. And I think that a lot of the time there isn't that, that much room for that in television. And I think you have to be very cautious and careful of your version management and how much you iterate and how clear you are with what you want um, to get where you need to be. And that's why, I mean, on Dark Materials, that, for example, that, that we had such a close relationship with the showrunners and the production that, that allowed there to be a lot of trust, which allowed us to get through the work in less versions, if that makes sense. I mean, I gather you're, you're currently working on season two. So um, considering the world as it is at the moment and, and how we've all spent the last three or four months um, largely at home, I mean, how, how has your job changed? Is it largely a case of working from home is, is quite straightforward in the post-production and VFX or have you found it as challenging maybe as a, as a lot of other people? Uh, Supervision-wise, which is what I'm doing now, it's actually not a huge change because we have a team in London, we have a team in Montreal, we have a team in India, and between those three teams on three different time zones, normally I'm doing remote review sessions anyway. When I did season one, I was in Cardiff reviewing with people in London remotely so that I could be nearer the showrunners, whereas now I'm doing that from home between London and Cardiff. So for me, it hasn't changed a lot. I think the really amazing thing, though, is the way that companies have adapted very quickly to the problem. You know, in as much as we went from having no one working at home to an entire company working at home within two weeks. And, you know, the fact that our systems teams and our kind of the managers at the company level have managed to do that is mental. And it's happened across the industry with, you know, a, you know in, with, in all honesty, a small dip in productivity for a couple of weeks, then back up to nearly 100%. And that's hard, especially when you're talking about a show where or, th- or, or, or an industry where you've got so many files and heavyweight material getting passed around. So for me, life hasn't changed dramatically, but I think for the industry itself, things have changed a lot. And it's interesting, and I think with every other industry as well, it's opened up the question of how much can you work from home? It's almost like now we've done it, how much do you want to roll it back? It's tricky. I'm sure there's lots of people that want to be doing this from home for the rest of time. So we'll see how that plays out. Talking about your your now BAFTA award-winning work on and His Dark Materials, you sort of said that that journey started two and a half years ago. I mean, broadly speaking, can you compare it to work you've done on any other show? Or is it has it been quite a unique proposition to bring kind of that world um, that, you know, that from Philip Pullman's books, uh, you know, to the screen in quite so much sort of amazing detail as, as has been produced? Yeah, I think there's two, I mean, there's two broad answers to that. One is my personal experience and one is the, the show itself. I think the show itself is, a, is, is pretty unique. I don't think there's any show that has such a high demand for visual effects constantly at a character level. I'm sure there's shows that have got environments all the way through and it's, you know, I mean, well, there are shows that have got environments all the way through and that's, that's heavy. But to have to create both the environments and then really characterful performances from furry creatures that have to play alongside really killer actors all the time and not mess up their performance, that's like a real challenge. So I think that makes it unique. And, you know, what's great is all of Pullman's books, you know, books one, two and three at least, they're very different. So they're a constantly new sort of refreshing challenge, which is great. And then personally for me, I mean, it's been great because I love the books and I, they were like, they're one of my favorite 
series of books. I kind of read them when I was in my 20s and I sort of was in love with them. And that was when I was just getting into visual effects. And I remember um, thinking that one day I would like to work at Framestore because they were doing really great work. Um, and also thinking it's a real shame because I've missed my window because they've made the movie now. So I can't go and work there. And then strangely, I ended up at Framestore. Then I ended up being the creative director of their TV department and then ended up supervising this. So it's been good because it's been like the, the culmination of lots of different strands of my life kind of leading to a project that I really love. So yeah, it's been good. What are those first steps that you take two and a half years ago into the world of, of His Dark Materials? What are those meetings you're having and, and how are you building up those initial concept designs, I guess, that will later form the animations we see on screen? Yeah, well, I mean, we had, we had a kind of a, an interesting run of it, actually, because we came onto the show quite late because they spent quite a lot of time courting the different companies because it was so critical who it would be because then that becomes a very central part of the show and there's obviously there's two choices you can either hire independent people to manage the visual effects then put that out to lots of different studios or you can creatively partner with one studio and because of how embedded the visual effects is in your show having lots of different studios delivering different characters who are talking to each other in different scenes becomes a complete head explosion but we came on quite late I mean I actually I think I only had between like five and seven weeks of prep which is not a lot for something this big. But fortunately, uh, what had happened is they had already started a lot of work up front. So Joel Collins, who's the production designer, um, who I also did uh, USS Callister with, and sort of we've, and long before that, we'd always kind of nearly worked with each other for a long time and had lots of friends in common. After doing Callister, he really was keen to get me on the show, but he actually has his own company called The Painting Practice. And they are um, a previs and concept, concept art department. And they had already been working on the show for probably six months, I think, maybe maybe a bit longer. So by the time we joined the world building in terms of the environments and all of those things had already really gone a long way and looked amazing. So when we turned up, instead of us turning up and going, oh, we've got to deal with creatures and the world, the world was kind of there. So we could look at that and kind of go, sort of breathe out. So, okay, we just need to execute that world and, you know, feed in little things about how it could be the better or inaffordable or, you know, whichever one. But the work they did was really, really sort of exceptional. So um, that meant that I could focus on the creatures. And they'd also already made the early decision, which is the only decision to make, which is to have puppeteering. So they had um, a, a master puppeteer called William Todd Jones. He was, he was awesome to me. And he'd already started thinking about how the puppeteering would, might work. So as soon as I came in, my main thing was, right, we're going to cast our animals. We're going to work out how they are. We're going to, I want to say cast, I mean, choose a type of animal for each human, not as in go out and find a real animal because we have no real animals in the show. So we very quickly went into this kind of deep dive. And so the things I had to work out were, one, what level did we need to do the puppeteering to? Because the actors and how the actors respond to the characters is basically what's going to make or break the show. The second thing was what those creatures would look like. The third thing is what made them not just normal animals. And uh, the last thing was how we would get through the show with the volume required on budget. <laughs> so we had to deal with those things. So some of them were conversations with the showrunners. So that was about the character. And I was very keen, and so were they, to keep them very natural. Because it's not a kid, it, it, it's a, it, what is it that Philip Pullman says? He doesn't, it's not a kid, for, it's not a book for kids, it's a book for adults that kids should read. Yeah. Because, so therefore, you don't want it to be silly or, you know, it's not, they're not caricatures of anything, they're just animals that represent your soul and can talk to you in a meaningful way. So I spent a lot of time looking at references of animals and kind of going, right, we've got to find the things that make them animal 
and then take away the things that aren't relevant in our world. So the need to mate, sniffing around for food, going to the toilet, all of those things, you strip them away and replace that with a human focus that allows them to feel like they're just on our, they're slightly on our side of their consciousness, of a human side of consciousness. And that was uh, really good fun to go through, actually. And then I worked with Todd and we made sure that we had a, a kind of a, an array of puppets that would allow us to very quickly maintain them, but had faces that had enough of a neutral expression that you could play sad, happy or whatever with the same puppet. It's amazing how the puppeteers do that. Uh, so that was that. And then how they sort of how they look, we then went through and found real animals that we thought were good references, either actual real living ones that we could bring on set for reference or just photographs of ones that like, we're not going to get a golden monkey on set. So loads of, loads of, loads of photographic reference of that for our artists to work from. And by the time we'd sort of done all of that, we, we'd already started shooting. So that was fun um, because of the time. Um, but it all came together and sort of worked. I, I guess one of the things about the show that people noticed was that not every, you know, in the book, every character has this, this demon with them. But um, I guess very clearly for expenses and, and time purposes, not every character in, on screen at any one time will have their demon visible i guess for for storytelling yeah. purposes so i mean was it what, what were the challenges you had kind of bringing those characters to life but also the volume of characters i, I gather sort of up to 50 you had to create individual demons at, at any point there's kind of a few there's a few angles on that there's one which is the finance of it that's fine i mean they cost money to put in the second thing is that it's a story about people it's not a story about demons like people think of dark materials they think about demons but demons are just one of the many ways that Philip Pullman represents the connection a person has with their soul and, the, and that kind of spiritual kind of connection. So it's not kind of the be all and end all. And we definitely didn't want to make Dr. Doolittle. And, and what's important is the main characters. So what we tried to do is we just tried to have enough demons to make sure we kept the spirit of them alive so that we could put all of our money and time into telling the story when it mattered with them rather than having to spread spread the butter too thinly over the toast and then you know not really taste it i guess is the way of describing it so that's kind of i mean it, so it wasn't just money it was also money and choice i think with the demons um, and then in terms of how you get character out of them it's really hard because the best the best challenge you can get given for example and this applies to i'll use ruth wilson and the golden monkey as an example but it applies to everyone especially daphne Keane and james mcavoy and lima miranda because they're kind of they're the main primary people with the demons and that is you have like this kind of strange duty of care to their performance because if you take Ruth Wilson and she's giving a really really emotional narratively driving performance and then you have to be the guy that sticks a golden monkey in the shot with her it can go south really quickly you have to find your way through and I think that it's really a case of a lot of good visual effects is, is an exercise in restraint. It's about stripping away things rather than adding things and knowing when it's your job to take center stage and when it's your job to pretty much shut up and just be there. So what we did with Ruth, just given it as an example, is first of all, she engaged really, really well with her puppeteer, Brian, and they worked beautifully together. And then the three of us would email and chat a lot about what the meaning of the scenes would be and what the tone and what we thought the demon connection could bring to it. And she has probably the most complex demon relationship out of all of the characters. And it's one that you have to track to the third book because it has an arc, but it doesn't talk. So you have to do it with physicality. So you have to work out how that changes over time. So, you know, what we would do is we, we, we actually brought Ruth into Framestore and she very kindly gave us a few hours. And I interviewed her about her backstory, the things that we never saw. And what we did is we did this big, long interview, which I then released to our animators so they could all listen to it and understand the character. So that the relationship I could then have with the 
animators was a director actor one and it worked really well because our animators are amazing and they really embrace that and and what happened at the beginning is i'd give more notes and by the end they were just giving me things that i hadn't even asked for and going yeah that's gold thank you it's about so i guess the summation of your question is it's hard you have to do your homework you have to understand the characters you have to really understand what the actors are doing in the scenes and what the subtext of that scene is and then you have to make the people perform performing the characters in CG understand that as well. Can you tell us what is in store in season two that you've been working on that we can look forward to? You know, the books have got some really cool stuff in them. If you read, the, I mean, the second book changes a lot. It changes where we are. So what's great is it opens us up to an entirely new environment. It took us away from having to do snow all the time, which was really useful. Um, and it offered a whole bunch of new challenges, which also means a whole bunch of amazing new sets that, again, Joel Collins designed with the painting practice. You know, we built a very large back lot that allowed us to accommodate that, so that's really good. We get some new creatures. The books have got these things called spectres in that are these kind of soul-eating, horrible things, um, which we have uh, designed and made <laughs> um, for the show. And, you know, and there's a lot... And what, what's, what's great and what I love about this show is that the visual effects is at the core of the emotional story. You know, I keep saying, my, my biggest comment is we don't make creatures, we make characters. Because you can make a creature that runs around and chases people for 20 shots and it can be amazing. And, you know, you can do a really good job and it can be the best work in the world. But to take a monkey and make it seem like a third or half of a person across eight hours of TV and now, you know, add on another whole season and let that character have an arc and let those two people have a journey... As like a gift for an animator and a visual effects supervisor. It's beautiful to do. So just carrying on their stories is really the thing that I love. And I really hope that we end up doing a third season because, you know, those stories go mental in the next book. How, how do you see effects in TV particularly kind of progressing from here? Are, are things only going to get more detailed and more, you know, high spec? Or where, where can we go from here? It seems like you can do anything already. What, what's the next level? I think what's tricky with, with, with asking about the future of this stuff especially now with COVID, is, it's a bit weird. So I think, you're, I think there's going to be a massive explosion of environment creation because of people not wanting to travel and not wanting to take whole units abroad. So I think you'll find there'll be more units going out and shooting the environments than coming back and either doing them traditionally with green screen or going down the kind of the LED wall environment extension uh, solution. So I think, that's, I, think, I think that's a big thing. I think virtual production is going to be massive. I mean, everyone is now expanding their virtual production offerings, including Framestore, because I think that the visual, the visual effects department can offer so much from so early on in a production. And historically, people used to think of visual effects as picture post. It's like we shoot the thing and you do the thing after. Whereas actually, we can help from day one, whether it's through concept design, whether it's through previs, you know, previs hybridized with storyboarding, whether it is us doing the content for a virtual production shoot on an LED wall. So you're doing your kind of Unreal Engine real-time work up front and therefore splitting your visual effects workload in half between, you know, before and after post or before and after production. You know, there's so much depth to to kind of our involvement. I think that, that my biggest takeaway actually, and I mean this from winning the BAFTA, outside of just being very proud to have won it and so proud of the team that worked on it, the biggest takeaway for me is how hard it was to thank people in a speech. Because when you actually sit down and write down the people that you have worked with on a show when you're in visual effects, it is every department. 
there is not a department, you know, that you do not have some kind of connection with to try and solve the problems. Whereas, you know, a lot of the other departments, yes, they are connected with lots, but I don't think it's anywhere near to the scale that visual effects are. We have to work with costume. We have to work with makeup. We have to work with stunts. We have to work with special effects. We have to work with props. We have to, you know, like the list just keeps going. So it's actually impossible to to sort of, and it made me realise when there were so many people I needed to thank, so I ended up just thanking hardly anybody because it's easier, is... It's just amazing how connected we are. And if we're that connected at that point, you know, it means that the earlier in the production visual effects can be, the, the more beneficial. And I think that is what you'll see. I think you'll see there'll be a huge increase in virtual production, a huge increase in LED wall shooting. And there'll probably be a period where suddenly there'll be too many visual effects in TV shows, much like there was in movies and everything. And suddenly it all gets a bit silly and then everybody then pairs it all back down again. And I think that's quite likely as well. So things will, I think things will change, but I think we'll have a spike now of environment work, probably crowd work as well. We're in a unique time now where, you know, if whether you're doing casualty or whether you're doing um, fantastic beasts, you've kind of got the same crowd problem for the first time ever in that, you, you know, casualty can't do a canteen scene and neither can Fantastic Beasts, you know? We're all trying to solve the same issue. Russell Dodgson from Framestore. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. Listener.